couple of weeks ago. Um, then I'll explain a little bit about the book and some of the process and the relationship with data, perhaps. And, uh, and then finish up with the reading. We've got about 20 minutes, I think, and then some uh, time for a, for a more open discussion. Um, just to say, the book, normally at things like this, um, uh, I'd have a pile of books to sell. Uh, but in this case, uh, the novel is being given away free. It's being published for free by the Science Museum. You can buy a... There's a very limited number of paperbacks you can get from the, from the museum shop. But mainly, uh, the book is being given away. Uh, and it's being given away... If you go to this URL, um, you can download it as a, as a, a free and DRM-free uh, e-book. Um, and within about, I don't know, 10, 10 seconds of going to that URL, if, you, if, you're, if you're running uh, an iPhone 4 or an iPad with iBooks on it, you could be reading the novel in about 10 seconds. Um, but it's DRM-free. You don't have to go through Amazon. You can, um, you can read it on a Kindle, but you have to sideload it. Okay, okay so I'm going to just read a little bit from chapter 8. <clears throat> and this section has a... Uh, I, I won't set it up too much because there's a bit of setup in this section which is why I chose to read it. <clears throat> it was not quite dawn, but the sky was lightening and there was no breeze so the smoke from hundreds of fires rose straight into the air and then hung over the camp, obscuring its farthest reaches. Browning often liked to come up here to the steep rocks above the settlement. He would sit here for hours sometimes, picking through the looser stones to find the occasional bright lump of quartz. It gave him a sense of perspective when things weren't going his way. It's lucky, he would think at such times, that I am the most patient man in patient's camp. Other times, please just sit down. Other times he got a kick seeing the place like this, like a god looking down from some celestial vantage point at all the little people below. At such times he felt that if he grew tired of patient's camp, he could simply brush it away with a sweep of his hand, as if all this was nothing more than ants swarming over the food and crumbs that had been left on a table at the end of a meal. Right now, he didn't know what to think, but it was something like this. If scum-like Captain Smiler can be king of this shithole, then what does that make me? On nights like this, when Browning couldn't sleep, he felt as if all they were doing was picking over a carcass. It was business as usual in patient's camp. Here we go again, he thought. Then, how do all those little people do it? Waking up in that squalor and beginning again the exhausting and relentless matter of staying alive, all driven by some slim hope that they're on the way to something better. Sure, he was waking up in the same squalor as them most mornings, but he had a safety net and a purpose in this place. He had important business that lifted him out of the seething chaos that lay spread out before him. Another day in patient's camp. 
But no, this was not just any other day. That was the problem. For a moment, Browning had forgotten about Smiler, but it was their last conversation that had kept him awake all night. He'd just been turning it over and over in his head. He felt that there was nothing he would rather do than go and tell Emily this latest outrage. But he didn't want to wake her. No, that wasn't quite it. He didn't want to ruin everything. He'd wanted to tell her what Captain Smiler had said so they could figure it out together, but had had to stop himself from running to her like a baby. It was only a couple of months ago that he'd first set eyes on these two, hardly any time at all, since they'd been as undifferentiated from the rest of the passengers as grapes in a bunch or identical yellow mangoes in a box. It was just a few weeks since he had protected them without a second thought. But now it felt as if he had known them all his life. And yet, Emily wasn't even his type. The joke was that at some point near the beginning of their voyage, as if to pass an idle moment, maybe once they'd got clear and could relax a little, he remembered looking fairly coldly at Emily and thinking, in more or less these exact words, that it was on voyages such as this that a man could fall in love. But it got worse. Wouldn't it be funny, he had thought to himself, almost as if it were a game, and never for a minute believing that it was even possible. Wouldn't it be funny? It was as if one half of him had been daring the other to do it. Wouldn't it be funny, he thought to himself, if I fell in love with this woman during the coming weeks afloat? Oh my goodness, that was the real joke of it. Because having had this thought, Browning had then watched himself inexorably doing precisely that. Like a toy train being pushed along a wooden track, he was powerless, had no possibility of changing course. He'd planted the idea in his own mind and then, like a fool, he'd watched it take root and grow until it dominated his thoughts and made him weak. Smiler, of course, had seen this weakness written all over his face, and now he was exploiting it. How could he have been so stupid? I'm going to leave that there for a second. Um, and uh, tell you a bit more about the book and the project. Um, so the, the, the novel is published by the Science Museum, as I just said, it's their Atmosphere Commission for 2013. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, it's, it's published um, DRM-free. There, no, there are no digital rights management uh, ch chains around the book. Uh, once you've uh, downloaded it, it's not, uh, it's not locked onto a particular device. You can share it, you can do whatever, whatever you want. Um, this is the, people are familiar with the DRM-free logo by, um, that's been produced by the <coughs> Defective by Design campaign. It's a spin-off of the, of the Free Software Foundation. Um, the, uh, yes, yeah, so you can download the e-book uh, in various formats on that web page there, which is that URL at the top. Um, the museum also giving away free audiobook extracts uh, on their SoundCloud page. Um, and, uh, and then in the Atmosphere Gallery, um, there's this display, this exhibition, uh, which is up for a year, um, and um, which has got a lot of books in ephemera relating to the, to the novel and the sort of scientific and literary inspirations behind the book. 
Um, but it's also designed, um, the museum have a, have a you know, immensely kind of nuanced and detailed amount of data about how people use the building, how people use the space. Um, so this uh, exhibition was designed uh, to suit a particular kind of dwell time, a particular amount of time that people would spend in the space. There's only, these index cards can only contain a maximum of 400 words, you know, um, something that could be read very quickly. Um, and on this screen at the side, there's a touch screen where uh, users can um, email themselves, again, email themselves a free uh, Kindle or EPUB or a PDF of the novel. Okay. I wanted to go back to some of the, the, the inspiration behind the book. Um, this is a photo of George Clark Simpson. Um, Simpson was a, uh, an atmospheric scientist and meteorologist. He was part of the, um, the Scott expedition, the, the, you know, the ill-fated uh, Scott expedition of 1911. This photo was taken during that expedition. Um, Simpson, um, when he was in Antarctica uh, in 1911, he wrote uh, a very interesting science fiction story uh, called Fragments of a Manuscript Discovered by the People of Sirius When They Discovered the Earth During Their Exploration of the Solar System. And uh, it's, it's not a great work of literature, but it's a, it's a very interesting story. Um, because it's one of the first science fiction stories that uses the formula, if not the first, uses the formulation climate change uh, within it. And in the story, the last surviving human uh, talks about how industrialization disrupted the freezing and thawing cycles of uh, Antarctic ice, how the ice melted, uh, and human life on Earth was, uh, was uh, destroyed as a result. It, it being an Edwardian story, um, there's a bit of period homophobia in the story as well, so effeminacy is almost as responsible for the uh, destruction of the human race as climate change, but um, nonetheless it's a very interesting story. It has been, um, it's sort of been overlooked since it was, since it was written. It was compiled in a, in a little homemade newspaper called the South Polar Times that Sir Ernest Shackleton had started a couple of years earlier. Um, which wasn't really a newspaper, it's just a little scrapbook that they'd pass around. And most of the research that's been done uh, looking through the South Polar Times archives has been looking at the scientific uh, content of those things. It's not the first place you'd go to find works of fiction. So I'd, I'd be, uh, when I sort of found this story, uh, I was saying to, talking to, to polar scientists and sort of experts in the field saying, but what about, this, what about the climate change uh, science fiction stories in South Polar Times? And they're going, what are you talking about? You know, Because um, uh, for a lot of the science community, the fiction bits are the boring bits that you skip through to get to the <laughs> science bits. It's kind of um, the opposite way to how I read um, the South Polar Times. Um, and Simpson, in the story, he warns uh, of the, the folly of ignoring um, scientific evidence of climate change. It's a very kind of prescient uh, story. And um, failed to return from the, the South Pole. That film was buried for, for quite a long time. Um, but Hurley's film wasn't. And it, so it was the, one of the first 
uh, first kind of moving image of uh, Antarctica that most people had seen that was on general, uh, on general release. And um, it's interesting that the, the, again, the Shackleton myth is a very, like the Scott story, it's a very potent, very potent story. Their ship was frozen in, they spent two years fighting certain deaths, you know, with every sinew, every ounce of energy escaping death in Antarctica through these little boat journeys, that, or these massive boat journeys they had to make in little boats uh, to get to South Georgia. But again, it was kind of just as we forget that people survived the Scott expedition. Uh, the kind of the way that the, the, the Shackleton story was used in, in the First World War was uh, this kind of idea, all saved, all well, that, that everyone had survived. But actually, but actually, three people died. But if you tell the story in a certain way, you can kind of pretend that didn't happen. Uh, and it was a, the, this idea of all saved, all well uh, was a really uh, a big kind of morale booster during uh, the First World War. Um, Shackleton was the founder of the South Polar Times, this little scrapbook newspaper that Simpson's story had been published in. And um, he was also a lover of poetry. He and his wife, Emily, used to quote uh, Browning's Prospis to each other uh, at times of, uh, at times of stress. Uh, in fact, Browning was a, was a terrible misquoter of, of poetry, uh, as Shackleton was a terrible misquoter of poetry. And even the, the quotation from, from Browning that's on his grave is a kind of awful bowdlerization of, uh, of Browning's uh, uh, poem, The Statue and the Bust, which says something like, I contend that every man should hold to his life's set uh, prize. And Shackleton was a kind of, uh, for him, he was... Uh, uh, he wasn't uh, upper class like a lot of the, the polar explorers. He was a, uh, of, of humble origins and means. And he saw the, the polar expeditions as a, as a means of self-betterment. It was, you know, it was a, a way of providing, making a name for himself, providing for his wife. Um, added to these... To, oh, and the... the Part of the research process for the novel was, was doing a shot-by-shot shot analysis of Hurley's film and looking at how it could be reused or remixed gestures, movements, camera, camera pans, tints, words, how that could be remixed to tell a new kind of story. wanted to add into that uh, picture the... Um, the publications of the IPCC, people, people are aware of these uh, documents. There's a, there's a huge, uh, huge public archive, really, um, that's available on the IPCC site. Uh, all of the reports, all of the data that goes into these, uh, the IPCC reports, there's a new one coming out at the end of this year, IPCC 5, uh, is available online. It's, uh, it's quite hard to read. Uh, it's uh, written by um, bureaucrats. You know, the, a lot of the science stuff is uh, kind of damped down and neutralised by the fact that the, um, the IPCC reports have to be something that every government uh, can agree to. Every word has to be agreeable to every government. 
And this produces some strange anomalies uh, in the IPCC reports, in, particularly in these, the, the um, SRES, they're called the Emissions Scenario Documents, where, uh, which, are, which are basically what, what every government is using to plan for climate change adaptation and mitigation. And, but because every government has to agree to every, every word that's in them, uh, in the current uh, suite of uh, emissions scenarios, all of the possible variations that might um, happen uh, as climate change speeds up and whether emissions go up or down, all of them are based on the assumption, which was out of date even before this was published, that the world will be a more prosperous place when this happens. There's no, uh, there's no accommodation of the idea that continuous economic growth is not the bedrock upon which adaptation and mitigation will take place. So um, you get these strange uh, anomalies where, for example, uh, at a certain uh, uh, level of uh, warming, uh, the snow of, of, the, of the European Alps will disappear um, and the, the adaptation strategy for that is to move every ski resort in Europe further up the mountain uh, year on year that we can spend our way out of, uh, out of trouble in other words and uh, one of the scientists that I was speaking to, Bob Spicer Bob Spicer who's a brilliant uh, paleobotanist whose work uh, involves going to polar regions and exploring, uh, looking at the fossil record of the plants that were that, that, that are there, um, and um, it was these fossils that inspired people like Simpson to to think about global warming a hundred years ago. Uh, those earliest Antarctic explorers discovered uh, fossils that suggested uh, that Antarctica had once been tropical. They thought they were slightly misreading. They they should have. Uh, in fact, it shows that it was a warm temperate. Uh, continent uh, with a small ice cap on the center uh, teeming with life and forests uh, that's 100 million years ago uh, the last time there's this much carbon in the, in the atmosphere and, but Sim uh, Bob Spicer the paleobotanist talking about this um, slightly uh, neutralizing process of ratification talking about IPCC says um, bear in mind the political this, this is Bob Spicer of the Open University bear in mind the political process that goes into the IPCC in particular the fact that in order to get ratified you've got to get governments around the world agreeing with the outcome and the wording is chosen so that everyone can sign up to it well that immediately gives you the lowest common denominator in terms of signal um, and actually it's worth just reminding ourselves at this point that the word scenario doesn't come from science or from military planning or from engineering. It comes from the arts. Uh, the scenario um, comes from the earliest days of opera. It was the name given to a list of scenes that's pinned to the back of the curtain on stage. That's the scenario, the origins of that. Um, well, that immediately gives you the lowest common denominator in terms of signal Bob Spicer again. And when that is coupled with the fact that the possible view of the future that you could imagine. So however bad, uh, what Bob's saying is, however bad 
what the IPC are saying sounds, that is the, the best possible version of what might actually be, be happening. But again, there's a, there's a connection to literature there. Um, this idea of the best possible world uh, is straight out of Voltaire. I mean, straight out of Condide, Voltaire's satirical novel in which everything is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. I just wanted to just talk you through a little bit, um, because we're here at the Invitation of the Open Data Institute, um, I wanted to talk about process a little bit, just dig in to a little bit of the very early writing process of the novel, um, where really to see what kind of new stories it might be possible to tell using the data that's produced by the IPCC and using um, these earlier Antarctic myths and using Simpson's idea. What would happen if these kind of Edwardian melodramas and this, sci this contemporary scientific language were kind of put together? What might happen? What new kinds of stories would that tell? And so I did that. I just took a suite of uh, data from the IPCC, took the uh, caption cards from Hurley's film, took fragments of uh, Simpson's science fiction story and kind of mashed them, mashed them up. And what, what came out of it was, was some sort of pre-formed, oh, sort of pre strange little text fragments, little non-verse verses, which... Um, uh, and I've just got a little montage of some of them here, which seem to be telling some, doing something quite new, <coughs> telling a different kind, telling a different kind of story about uh, about climate change. And uh, I thought of this initially as an armature, a kind of armature. You know, if you're making a sculpture, if you're making a sculpture with clay or plaster, you build an armature, a little frame, a wire frame, around which you place your material. Uh, but because, um, because the novel is also about, in a large sense, about scientific process, I thought it was more interesting to, to show the working out, if you like. And so these fragments um, I retained. I didn't bury them, didn't cover them up. I kept them at the, at the top, in a way, and used them as, as epigraphs at the beginnings of, uh, of the chapters. Um, also, the um, I just wanted to quickly mention um, the kind of design of the project. Um, I worked with uh, a brilliant British designer called Jake Tilson, who uh, people might know his work from working with Ian Dury and the Blockheads, or with Paul Smith and people like that. And he's uh, he's one of the best kind of uh, designers uh, around for producing a kind of dynamic logo type. Um, and Jake and I were talking and trying to retain something of the period feel of the the kind of Shackleton myth. And so Jake produced this kind of um, Art Deco inspired typeface, especially for the for the book. But then. Um, but then he morphed it and kind of see what would happen if we 
sent it south. Um, and so this, uh, this logo type here, the, this kind of melting logo type, is what's on the cover of the book, and it's what's on the, on the wall in the, in the science museum. But rather than, um, rather than going with the received ideas and the received kind of colour schemes associated with uh, polar archives, with Shackleton, and those kinds of myths, uh, we wanted to kind of flip it on its head, to, to flip the polarity of that myth, um, and use, um, instead of using the colours of, of cold, of, uh, of ice, um, using the colours of, um, that are used in, in maps to represent temperature increases. So, so we went with this kind of yellow into red, a kind of uh, colour gradation into, uh, between yellow and red. Um, and this idea of flipping the polarity of the, of the story became the kind of, um, kind of ethos of the novel and the, and, the, and the propulsion system of the novel in a way. So uh, rather than, um, so kind of it's, the novel becomes a retelling of the, of the Shackleton myth, but it's a fleeing to Antarctica rather than from it in a hot world rather than a cold one. Um, and um, this, this kind of uh, reversal, it's quite a potent uh, tool uh, that's available to anyone. Um, and um, it also enabled us to sort of, or enabled me, and to try and communicate this out through the, through the ex exhibition, uh, which is why I said us, uh, but enabled me to sort of think of um, Shackleton in a slightly new way, to think of him as a, you know, a, a kind of early economic migrant of, of sorts. If you see the photos that Hurley took of um, the original patient's camp, it's a, it is a refugee camp. It's a refugee camp on an ice floe, but it's a refugee camp. Um, and the iconography of that uh, escape, the cold, the small boats, the desperate... Uh, boat journeys, the, the attempts at uh, self-improvement and looking for economic opportunity uh, take us into, into the kind of imagery of, of contemporary migration. Um, there's a great uh, English folk song from the 17th century that uh, probably if you were heard singing it in the field uh, you'd have been transported. Uh, it was a satirical folk song called The World Turned Upside Down. Um, and the lyrics go something like, um, it's very jolly and kind of hey nonny no sort of stuff. But the lyrics go, if buttercups buzzed after the bee, if boats were on land and churches on sea, if uh, winter was spring and the other way round, then all of the world would be upside down. Uh, so that's also a kind of quite a potent kind of trigger in the in the telling of this uh, of this novel. Um, and this is a the kind of flip side of uh, the kind of psychic negative, the psychic inverse of that the Shackleton iconography. This is a photograph taken by the, the Moroccan police of boats being. Um, and um, it's a kind of catalogue of disasters. There, 
their journey was just as heroic, you know. Um, but the, there was a telegram that someone was meant to pass on to them to say, don't lay the supplies this year, we won't need them, they can wait till next year. Um, and that telegram wasn't passed on. Um, so they, they, uh, they struck anchor. Their ship was, became frozen in as well uh, for a year or so. Um, the crew um, started, uh, went onto, onto land in their summer clothes. Um, and then a storm came and blew the ship out to sea, still stuck in the ice. And they were stuck uh, in their summer clothes on Antarctica with, they thought, the responsibility for laying the supplies without which Shackleton's party would die. So they spent a year and a half laying that supply tram, um, which they did. And then it, it took them five months to, to walk back to where they thought the ship might be. Uh, and in that journey, three of the uh, expedition members died. Uh, and then others of them, after, after clawing their way back, you know, from certain deaths, you know, certain deaths that could, would overtake you in a matter of hours, um, a, a, a lot more of them were then killed in the trenches immediately. Thank you. I wondered about the satire of it, because I see Monty Python, I see 1960s iconography up there as well. Yeah, interestingly. You've said a little bit about the word satire on the cover, but how can you make, make it funny, given the... I don't, think, I don't know that satire necessarily means funny. Um, it's, interestingly, Jake, is one of the reasons I wanted to work with Jake Tilson, Jake is associated with a particular kind of counterculture publishing of the late 70s. Um, the, uh, if you remember the sort of pirate editions of Pinchon short stories that used to be published in the UK by Allo's Press, A-L-O-E-S, before his short stories were available in any other format. Uh, Jake did a lot, a lot of the typesetting and the cover designs for those Allo's Press books at the, at the end of the 70s. And yes, it does have a... Uh, we sort of pulled back from a really degraded image, which looked quite psychedelic, you know, when it could, got into a further kind of degree of morphing. But actually, the satirical... Uh, there's a lot of satirical work in the book um, because the... Um, uh, partly the con because the connection with the world turned upside down, this 17th century folk song, which is a satirical song. Uh, not a funny one, but a satirical one about the reversal of the world order, of the natural order, uh, as it was seen. And um, the world turned upside down is a, is a song that was used by John Gay, uh, the, uh, the, the, the writer, the opera, the opera writer, um, the author of the Thrippany Opera and of Polly, Polly, his more interesting, less well-known uh, work, which is a sequel to the Thrippany Opera, which is a kind of opera set in the Black Atlantic, you know, with criminals and slaves uh, uh, rising up, you know, rising up against their uh, their masters. And and this is a like the Thrippany Opera is a ballad opera, Polly. Um, and the ballad opera, the whole point of a ballad opera was it's very loosely scripted. 
so that you can interject contemporary topical and satirical um, content. And uh, in places, the, the structure of a, of, of a ballad opera is used in the, in the novel uh, precisely as a way of negotiating the use of uh, satirical material. And the, um, uh, I suppose an example of that uh, is the, 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 the novel begins with a found manuscript. It begins with, um, say, with Simpson's fragments of a manuscript found by the people of Sirius. The found manuscript gag is a, it's one of the oldest literary devices in the book, you know, from the, from the first days of the novel. Um, but the novel ends with a, with a found manuscript gag as well, uh, which was... Um, so this, this is a, a chapter called the, the Beatification of John C. Yu. So if people know uh, uh, John Yu... He is the, um, he's not anymore, uh, but he was the Deputy Assistant Attorney General in uh, the United States at the beginning of the 21st century. And uh, it was he who was responsible for, for kind of notorious, but not as notorious as it should be, a document called the High Seas Memorandum, uh, also known as the uh, Torture Memo, uh, which he uh, wrote in March 2003, um, and um, this was the, the memo uh, which detailed over hundreds of pages why torture wasn't really torture and why, it's, uh, why it should be legal. Um, and uh, the final kind of satirical manoeuvre in the, in the novel is to take um, Yu's memo and to turn it into an anti-torture manifesto uh, without altering any of the content, without changing punctuation or, or word order, but just by redacting uh, text. Uh, so the, la the last pages of the, of the novel kind of look like that, the kind of familiar redaction trope that we all, that we all know. Um, but, like, uh, but as with Simpson's found manuscript, which where he um, wrote... There wasn't the visual language of redaction in, in 1911. He used the ellipsis as a way of uh, breaking up, fragmenting his uh, found manuscript. Um, but this, so, so after that kind of manoeuvre, um, John Yu's memo reads like, reads like this. We believe that torture is not an interrogation method, that the Supreme Court provides rights to non-citizens who have no established connection to the country, and who are held outside sovereign United States territory, that courts and government must establish a statutory prohibition on torture, etc., etc. Um, so, so that kind of satirical imperative is at the heart of the book. Yeah.